Welcome to The Self-Made Theory. The podcast that's all about innovating, overcoming and prospering. We interview founders, entrepreneurs, innovators, CEOs and other exciting people about their amazing business journey. Over to your host, Ben Campbell, for this week's episode. This week on The Self-Made Theory, I interview Andrew. He runs a fascinating business called Avela, which is in the ag tech industry. And maybe agriculture isn't your bag, but this interview is all about innovation, cyber security, artificial intelligence, machine learning, startups, blockchain, drones, sustainability, food and wine. There's a lot we cover. And Andrew tells us how technology is fundamentally going to change the way that your food is going to be produced. He talks a little bit about if you're innovating, are you creating a million dollar solution to a hundred thousand dollar problem that you don't have to jump into the abyss by leaving your job to create your startup. He talks about combining what you love with learning and that will drive you to do great things. And for those with a bit of experience under their belt, we talk also about you don't have to be a 20-something to be an entrepreneur. That life experience is very valuable for innovation and startups. My name is Ben Campbell, and this is The Self-Made Theory. Andrew, welcome to The Self-Made Theory. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's taken us a bit of time to get together, only because you're uh, you're all over the place. You're rarely here in Adelaide. Yes, yeah, we've been uh, we're based in Adelaide, but uh, spending a bit of time recently up in Northern Territory and then uh, interstates so of Sydney and Melbourne, are sort of regulars on the on the schedule. Yeah, very good. So let's start with your elevator pitch. Who is Avela? Okay, so Avela are an ag tech beta works company uh, that are focused on finding local pain points that have global application in the agri industry. And we then find technology, intellectual property, both locally and throughout Australia, and then basically build solutions sort of co-developed with our industry partners. Yeah, right. So there's a lot of talk about ag tech at the moment. You see it in the newspaper. A lot of people listening may not actually know what ag tech means. Most people will know what farming is, yep. and uh, they would have a picture in their mind of uh, what we might consider the average farmer. But the world is changing, and it's changing here in South Australia too. And so what what does it mean for the average consumer? I think, I mean, look, ag tech to us means uh, agriculture, food and wine, and sort of everything in between, everything that that touches. So everything from on-farm managing you know, DNA of soil analysis through to smart packaging, track and trace provenance, uh, logistics, and sort of everything between that sort of literally that paddock to plate theory that people have been talking about for a few years. So ag tech... What we see is a, a way that you can use technology to optimise throughout that process and optimization being sustainability, profitability, uh, efficiency and sort of those things. We don't see those as mutually exclusive. That's that's what we see the bulk of people trying to, I guess, optimise the way their businesses run using technology. And so why are the farmers interested other than you know, the profitability? I imagine farming for many years and I grew up in sort of a rural farming community was very much we've always done it this way and that's the way that they continue to do it but that's not the world today with ag tech so why are farmers getting on board yeah I think what I mean there's definitely you know that yeah this is the way we did it you know 20 years ago and 50 years ago and 100 years ago the I guess the areas where we see there are, are gaps are around uh, subjectivity so well I'll give you an example a, a dairy farmer walks around a paddock and looks at the paddock and says, 
I think there are three, there's three days worth of feed in this, uh, three days worth of pasture or feed in this paddock. And they'll then base the modeling of, okay, bring the cows out of the dairy, put them into that paddock, and then they'll go back into the dairy and move them to another, another paddock. So that, that approach, which has been the way that my grandpa did it and then my dad did it and the way I do it, do it is, um, that's a way of saying, well, subjectively, I think there's three days worth of feed here. Objectively, is in ground truthing that data. So, for example, using drone technology and spectral image technology to look at the look at the the dry matter content of that grass and give an objective read of the whole paddock. That gives them a way to be able to say, okay, objectively, I know exactly how much is in there. Not gut feel, not anecdotally, not I did a quick look around. I looked at this part of the paddock, but I've looked at the whole paddock and I can actually tell you there's 4.7 days worth of feed in that paddock or there's 1.2 days worth of feed in that paddock. So you're about to put cows into a paddock, which means they were going to be eating less pasture, which means they're producing less milk and at a lower quality of fat and protein of, the, of that milk. So I guess it's it's that that way of of farmers saying okay where are there areas in my when I say farmers say so that that whole industry so that the food industry the agri industry and the wine industry saying where are there either blind spots subjective areas of of us analysing the way that we're undertaking our business that technology can help them become more objective. So does that then change who farmers are going to be in the future? Do you see a, a change from you know traditional farmers where they rely very much on the natural read that they have based on their experience through to people who perhaps don't necessarily have the experience in farming but because of the data that's available to them could enter into farming? Look, I, look, I think it's going to be a combination of both. Uh, I did some, I did a uh, one of those executive degrees um, last year at. Uh, MIT looking at artificial intelligence, machine learning, and impacts on business strategy, and the the outcome of that is that this is the, the technology and humans will work together. I'm one of these believers that the machines won't take us over. Um, I think there's uh, I think there's there's a um, there's an absolute wealth of knowledge in the mind of of anyone who's been in any industry, especially if it's multi generational. But tooling those people with the right technology and right equipment can enable them to excel. Likewise, someone that wants to enter into that industry. Um, so that might be, for example, someone who's a um, one of the examples of the the businesses that one of the companies that we've um, formed, um, MechPro, which is a meat eating quality um, objective and analyzer of meat eating quality. Because again, that's one of those areas where someone looks at it and they make the call on on the uh, the quality of the meat. Uh, well, the people we've got around that, uh, one of them is actually from the land, but he wasn't in the meat space. He was in the, the broadacre space, uh, and the CTO from that is a, a computer science graduate. You know, city slicker, and now you know spends a, a degree of his time in the in the bush and in the abattoirs, understanding the the process and, and crunching the data, and 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 then there's opportunities to then take that data into, for example, uh, genomics. So then you can say, okay, well, let's use genomic analysis to work out the quality traits um, in cattle. So then you've got laboratory people involved. So I think that the the network or the web that it expands out and can bring people into. Um, and I guess that was probably one of my key surprises about entering the ag tech industry only a, a few years ago, or the ag industry a few years ago. It's just how broad that network is, you know, certainly throughout Australia um, and ingrained, you know, in, in a lot of people and a lot of, you know, little, if you look at a lot of history of a lot of places like Adelaide and South Australia, um, you know, it's certainly built on the back of the agri industry. And if you look at the, you know, the wine industry here and a lot of the industries ha- we have here, they're still very big industries. So why you? Andrew, why? I mean, you can see the passion on your face when you talk about this. Why are you the person that's driving this and helping and helping bring this to life? So, yeah, well, what, so what's your background? Yeah, so there's two of us involved in Avela. There's, there's myself and Remo Carboni, we're the, we're the co-founders of Avela. 
I think the 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 whole concept of commercialization. I mean, look, I've always been a, a businessy guy. I uh, you know I always I started working at a pretty young age and you know, folding papers and every spare second I had, I was you know working at the fruit and veg shop and at the butcher and I took stats for the local football team on a, in the afternoon and ran the boundary and cleaned the Guernseys and did whatever I you know I just I've always I guess loved working. Um, after I finished school, I, I took a year off and, and uh, travelled a bit overseas teaching sport and then went and worked in the mines uh, over in WA and earned good money, good money back then. I was, I was 18 and it was, it was good money and I, I saved it all and I came back and put the money into the stock market and um, just fell in love with the stock market, just the, the information flow uh, and, and especially all the technology companies that were emerging. This is in the, the late 90s. Uh, so I, uh, I basically begged and pleaded with a local uh, stockbroking firm and uh, said, look, I'll sweep the floors and clean the toilets and uh, I want to work here. Um, <laughs> and they said, finish your degree and we'll give you a job. And I said, no, I want to I want to work now. And um, and so I sort of kicked that off and, and uh, and then the tech boom really kicked in and lots of companies were floating and lots of technology companies were emerging and there were lots of deals being done and, and uh, you know, we're really starting to see things move in the technology world. There's obviously a big bubble burst at the end of that that everyone recalls, I think in 2000 and 2001, April, whatever it was. Um, but that just gave me the bug for tech. And I'd set up my first e-commerce company at that stage, um, funny enough, doing SMS share price alerts, which might sound funny now, but back then that was pretty snazzy. <laughs> pretty revolutionary back then. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And uh, But that was uh, that didn't work for a, a few reasons. A couple of people left. Uh, we tried to do a deal with a, a group and they sort of took our intellectual property. I didn't know what a pattern was. I didn't know... Uh, I just didn't know. And so I thought, right, I want to learn this. So uh, I went and... So I'd, I'd finished my undergrad in banking and finance and, and thought I'll um, go and do an MBA. And in my first lecture at my MBA, uh, we had to say why we're doing an MBA. And I said, oh, I'm trying to learn this. And the lecturer came up to me afterwards and said, you know, there's a, a Master's of Science and Technology Commercialization at the University of Adelaide that's just started up. I think you'd be good for that. And so I thought, hey, why not work full-time and do two master's degrees full-time? And, uh, and off I went. So um, You crazy man. <laughs> yeah, it was a uh, – look, I'm not going to lie. My, uh, my football career died at that stage. My, uh, my going to the pub career died those days as well. But look, I, I was on a bit of a mission. I absolutely loved it. And, and um, you know, someone that sort of, I guess, scraped a little bit through my undergrad because I just found it a, a little bit boring, being blunt. Um, I loved my, my master's. Uh, the, the lecturers were all from industry. The case studies were all live and from industry. The people involved in them, and I actually met my then future boss David Hill uh, from Deloitte's, and um, who's now the CEO of Deloitte. Um, lovely guy, visionary, and he said, "Look, come and come and work with me." And and uh, and I said, "Look, I want to run startups." He said, "Look, you'll learn a lot here. Uh, we can do some work around commercialization." So we did, and uh, so I spent a few years there. Um, and then basically went out on my own and uh, as, a, as a commercialization consultant, I used to call myself, and uh, and and look, ran a lot of um, companies through the different government um, grant schemes that were available to help them get funding in. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that there aren't, you know, some people think startup well, you know, it's, you know, people out in their back shed, it's not, it's a real mixed bag. And I, I would almost argue some of the best technologies, if not the best technologies I've seen have come from um, whatever you want to call them, more mature people, you know, people in their you know late 30s, 40s, 50s that have had the experience of being in, in an industry for 10, 20, 30 years and seeing, hey, here's a real gap and, and here's a real opportunity. And I know because I've been in it for X amount of time that this is a, an issue. I'm not discounting the, the young crew. We love <laughs> young innovations, but... Um, yeah, so through that and then uh, and then off the back so, of that. So just on that, so sorry to interrupt, but just on that, I mean, the challenge at that age of life often for many people is risk. 
Right? Yeah. I'm in my 30s, I'm in my 40s, I'm you know, early 50s, maybe 15 or 20 years off of retirement. Yeah. Uh, do I bet the farm or do I bet my house? Do I bet you know my future? They're often People are often in stable employment at that point as well. Do you see that there's a, I suppose, a group of people there that are you know, more risk adverse so therefore don't do anything? Yeah, look, I think that we've come from that. I think there has been a, a group that say, well, I'm in this job, I've got this superannuation, this long service leave, this mortgage, these kids, you know, these, you know, school fees and all of the above, just li- living. Um, yeah, that's definitely a, a risk profile side. I think what, what, and where I was um, going to head before was that there's, I think there's opportunity now for people to straddle a little bit more and say, look, I want to keep my, I want to keep my existing job that I've got today and I would also like to create my startup and build the startup and I think that you can move them to a degree without sort of a hundred and you know hundred and ten percent look don't get me wrong the 30 40 hour work weeks turn into 60 70 80 hour work weeks because they're the hours that you know, a few of the people in here at the, at the think lab do you know being full-time on the startups as they've gone to that that next stage um, but I would definitely encourage anyone who's who's thinking about moving into or creating or founding a startup and, and having a go to to have a go, and I guess a few reasons for that, which is back to your original question, is is you know sort of why me or why us or what's our, our approach is just always been an a believer of never want to die wondering. I'm pretty impatient, uh, and I'm I'm pretty pushy as per some of those sort of earlier stories, um, and I'm just an avid believer you've got to hit startup well with a, a big degree of urgency. Uh, and I, I've seen a lot of companies um, go broke. I've seen a lot of startups start dwindle off. And I think, I don't know what the number is lately, but I think it's still up in the uh, the 80s or 90s of, of startups that, that, that fail in the first year or two or three. I don't like the word failure. I think we, we massively overuse that here. I'm an avid believer of, I would employ a person with startup, and this is all things equal, with startup experience over someone with you know 20 letters after their name any day of the week because if you felt the hurt of max credit cards you know continual 60 hour weeks you know I talked about one where I just sort of had to skip a night and walk into 40 meetings but that's just the way the game is played um, don't be wrong we get our downtime I say to the team hey if you want time off Christmas time give or take a few weeks of Christmas no one wants to do any trialing any piloting any deals nothing signed because you know everyone's running skeleton stuffs. And that's when we have our, I guess, our downtime. But um, that I think coupled with, I always have always looked to the future and always trying to look to the future. So this morning I spent some time with with uh, some of the team at Syro and you know we were talking about, okay, where is that industry going to be in five years' time and where do we as a team think it's going to be in five years' time and where is our techno- how is our technology going to help it to get there? So we spend a lot of our time understanding industry pain point where could that industry be in five years' time? So I think part of our persona is that sort of strategy side, which is a lot of what Remo and I have spent the last 20 years of our careers involved in. Um, you know, we've we've raised venture money, we've given venture money, we've raised pro- uh, public money, we've given public money, uh, and we've uh, we've you know worked in a mixture of industries. So I've worked in cybersecurity, genetics, entertainment industry, uh, machine learning, AI, you know, agriculture. But I'm not from those industries. We I guess have a process that we approach things in which is getting the technology to a minimum viable product as quickly as you can at as low a cost as possible. So you talked about a sense of urgency. Where does that sense of urgency come from and why is it so important? Because you can see that it's obviously clearly very important to you. Look, I think it comes from if you look at a lot of, for example, the research community, they'll have projects that will go on two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And and some of that's completely fine. And, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm an avid believer of blue sky research. I think there should be plenty of people doing technologies that we're not going to see in the community for 10, 15, 20 years away. 
Um, but I also think there's a lot of research being done out there that we could be seeing in the industry today and some of the drivers around getting those into industry, that's, I guess, the gap in the market where we play. And because there's a gap in the market, it's very there's a very finite resource that goes in there. So you only have one choice but to be urgent. So I, I'm not an avid believer of saying, hey, I've got a technology, go and raise $5 million and go away for three years and come back and report to your shareholders in the marketplace. And I'm not saying that sort of happens per se, but in the past, there's been a few examples of that. I'm an avid believer of saying, what's the time and cost required to get to that minimum viable product to really prove out? Is, does, does someone, is there a customer or customers that really want to pay for what you've got? And what I mean by that is everyone's interested in everything, right? I'm interested in lots of things, but there's not a lot of things I'd pay for. And so one thing is to ask that question. The second thing is to get something to a point where you want someone to pay for it. And when it comes to someone parting with their dollars, really distilling down what is the actual business case and what is the, you know, what is the business case as for them to buy it? What is the financial model that you need to make sure that you can grow the business? And are you making money out of it? As in, you know, the uh, the million dollar solution for the hundred thousand dollar problem scenario. I've also seen a few of those in my travels, and also I think the other thing that people, uh, you know, when it comes to urgency, is when people create a new technology or they create a, a new solution, they often think, "Oh, I'll just sell it to, for argument's sake, supermarket chain A." What people don't understand is supermarket chain A have got a huge number of embedded systems. They've got a huge procurement protocol. They've got 10 layers of people that have to approve something. They've got incumbent suppliers that have been in relationship with for 10 or 20 or 30 years, including some that you know they'll go to the AFL grand final with if you get my drift. So when you've, when you've got something new, you need, to be, you need to think about, okay, who am, I, who am I selling it to and why? And what exactly is the requirement to get there? And, and who have I validated that with? And, there's a, and that's the other one of my other learnings from startup world. There's a lot of behind the desk on Google looking for answers. And then there's actually nothing beats getting out there and looking at the customer and looking in the eye and, and, and walking around there, whether it be, for example, around the vineyard or around the dairy or around the meat processing facility. And if you can, get through to the owners as quickly as you can or get through to the C-level people as quickly as you can because most of them are super, super, super busy and they will give you a uh, no-sugared answer. They will give you a very blunt either, this is going to help me here or here. And to, and more importantly, often they'll tell you, you know what, if you did this, this, and this to your widget, it would be really useful here. And I can tell you that's going to save me or that's going to make me more money than it would there. And often you'll find that the C-level people are the only ones in the organization that really think like that. It's interesting. You know, we often focus on the competition when coming up with a new idea or a new process or a new product or a new widget and in the industry in which you're selling. But competition is often completely irrelevant in that space. The competition is for somebody's time. The competition is for your dollar that's in your pocket today that's being spent on something else. Right? It's got nothing to do with whether my widget competes with you know, manufacturer B's widget. That's it's it. actually about competing with all the other things outside of my industry that people often don't think about. And and ex- and extending that to and what what we often do with our team. So we might have people from the computer science you know background. And we'll so for example, recently we did uh, we launched one of our our technologies, which is called Trust Provenance, which is a, a smart supply chain solution which uses blockchain and IoT devices to track produce through the supply chain to essentially both provide real time and tamper proof data at each stage in the supply chain, but also to identify where are their blind spots or where are their opportunities to to improve the supply chain, such as 
temperature control and management and um, ripening times and other other uh, key elements that can increase the quality of um, of the produce. So can we just talk about that, particularly the blockchain? Why blockchain? What problem really is it solving today yep. that we didn't know about two years ago or three years ago or four years ago? Yeah, so my uh, – and if you have to bear with my, my lamer interpretation of blockchain because I'm not the uh, the technical whiz, no, but no, I guess – I'm interested in, in the use case, right, particularly with – Yeah, problems. no, for sure. And look, I, you know, and I've run a, I've run a cybersecurity business before and I, I, and I think what – what the, my original sort of intro into blockchain was, um, you know, so whatever, you know, four or five years ago, um, when some of the, uh, the, the hackers that were on our team were, were mining bitcoins when they were, I don't know, like a dollar or something. When they were, you know, but they didn't, they didn't care about the mining. They loved the math. And when, when we sat down and got into it, what they basically outlined is that everything's hackable, right? But the most unhackable thing is, is blockchain. And, and when I got them to keep distilling it down to my layman, layman brain was, if you think about, say, Fort Knox, right? You know, people say, I'll lock it up like Fort Knox. So in our minds, I don't know, in my mind, I've got this big fort with lots of gold in it. This then got a wall around it and another wall and men with guns or whatever it is. But if you got through all those walls and you took out all those men, you got all the gold, right? And so the way I look at blockchain is that the, and the gold in this scenario being information. And so the way I look at blockchain is that the, the, to get the information, you need to get into thousands and thousands of Fort Knoxes at the same time and knock them all over at the same time to then be able to sort of hack into the blockchain and then gather that piece of information. So, so what, so the practical application, a lot of people have pushed the transaction side and saying, well, this is good for transaction, you know, banking transactions and, um, things like letters of credit when you, you know, you're selling your, your lentils to a buyer in Sri Lanka and, and you want to make sure you're going to get paid and, and having more efficient ways than existing letters of credit and other financial instruments, which usually charge, I guess, comparatively a higher dollar amount than what the blockchain can, can be used for because it's obviously at a lower, lower price point, so to speak. But is there a big problem there today? Like, is it solving a big problem? Look, because I, I don't hear a lot about banks being hacked, you know, et cetera. Is there really a big problem there or is this a technology well, that's found, is finding a home and people are still trying to find use cases for it? Yeah, look, I think that, I think there's a little bit of I think there's a little bit of that, but I think the the beauty of it of of people trying to find a home for it is it creates discussion. And then what we found was in the supply chain, for example, fruit and veg has a rejection rate when it gets to the distribution center, so if the big the big retail outlets. Now, if you have a piece of fruit that leaves your factory and you say it's in a one condition, let's say you say it's a hundred out of a hundred, and then it gets to a distribution center and it's at a 79 out of 100, therefore it's rejected. You've just had a cost of goods of picking the fruit, packing the fruit, freighting the fruit, storing the fruit, ripening the fruit, refreighting the fruit, and then it gets rejected. So your cost of goods is still very, very high. So then we looked at that and said, okay, where in that structure is there an opportunity to get the information data points and secure those data points? And get those data points in real time and have them secured in real time in a, in a way that doesn't just create another system that's proprietary. And that is by using the blockchain to say, okay, well, let's use the blockchain to secure each of these data points, provide them to everyone in real time. And then part of the way that the, the, the blockchain works is through what's called a smart contract. So that is terms and conditions of which you and I agree. And then those conditions can be set into that contract, i.e., you say to me, Andrew, I want you to supply me with these Andrew's apples. 
Um, they have to come in at this temperature. They have to come in at this sweetness. They have to come in with this many blemishes on it as a maximum and other criteria. That information is then secured into the into the blockchain. If that then come, if if they're leaving your depot and that's assured through computer vision, that's assured through IoT devices, which is part of what our solution develops, and then our device follows it through the supply chain. And at each touch point in fifteen minute intervals, we're getting data on temperature and GPS. There are three independent assessors done on the on your apples. They use devices, all those devices send information up into our, our solution. So the point is, if that wasn't on the blockchain, and we just said, oh, this is just our offering, someone could just hack into our, our machine and change the data around if they wanted to. Now, you might think, well, who's going to do that? I think the, the thing I learned about hacking the cybersecurity industry is we hear an absolute fraction of what actually goes down in the wide world. Because if you think about it, let's say your bank was hacked today for just pick a number, 50 million bucks. Do you think one of the big four want to come out and say, we've just been compromised 50 million bucks? Now they might say, oh, hang on, that doesn't happen. There are, I'm going to have a believe the biggest hack in history is happening right now. We just don't know about <laughs> it, right? <laughs> and so, and that's where that's where I think the, I'm going to have a believer, obviously, because that's where we're playing, that logistics and supply chain is, is where blockchain will find its its first home, but there are like an AI machine learning. I reckon there's a lot of industries that are going to see some some real opportunity around uh, using those technologies. So when we think about some industries, let's take insurance as an example. There's a bit of an insurance play here, isn't there? Right in terms of insuring against uh, against being hacked. But is there an opportunity here for for companies to use this technology not just as for an insurance play, but as a real competitive difference? Look, I think there's 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 different. I mean, the, the way the opportunity that I see in that supply chain scenario I talked about with fresh produce is that if I was an insurer, and actually, actually case in point, Walmart two weeks ago or three weeks ago announced that any any supplier of fresh produce to them by September 2019 will have their supply chain blockchained. All right. So so wow. if you so if you're yes, that's wow. that's that's yeah, well, it's a, it's yeah. a big and, and we're obviously and you know, to your point about competition, someone said to me, well, doesn't that doesn't that worry you? And Cara 4 actually just signed up on Friday to use the same um, same IBM solution. And our solution is similar to theirs, well, very similar to theirs. I said, look, it's, it's a good problem to have. If Walmart are saying this is what we want, we're in discussions with the, with the um, retail chains here. One of them is tied into one of our, our projects. Um, they all know it's coming. Um, but you know, to your earlier point about competition is one thing. It's how you actually engage, which you're dead right. It's how you engage with... The entity, the people, the existing infrastructure, the system, information flow management, all of those things are absolutely imperative. But I think, look, in answer to your direct question, yes, look, there's, if I was an insurance company and I had three suppliers of apples in front of me and one of them had their supply chain completely blockchain under a quality assurance program driven by a retailer and the other two didn't, then yeah, I'd be offering them a, a lower, a lower premium because I know the odds of them coming to me for a claim are going to be lower because you, you're, you're showing a way to remove, I guess, ambiguity or smoke and mirrors, grey, whatever you want to call it, that currently exists in in a lot of in a lot of multi-party transactions. And this this only extends out even further if you're talking about exporting. So tying customs, quarantine, multiple docks, shipping companies, customs at the other end, uh, distribution centre acceptance rates at the other end. Um, you know, especially to some of those markets, you're, you're talking a lot of smoke and mirrors. So, what's in it for the retailer? Why are Walmart doing this? Because it makes sense if you're a you know, manufacturer or a grower. But what's in it for Walmart? I think there are two core drivers to it that we found. I think the first one is around food waste minimisation, uh, and the second one, and and these change in order in, in priority. Uh, and the second one is around provenance or authenticity. You know, track and trace. So. We've all heard, you know, there are 50 times as many bottles of grain sold in China as there are made and they come out of, you know, McGill up the road. 
Um, likewise, you know, I've heard, you know, they're 20 times as much King Island steak sold <laughs> than what's produced on King Island. So, um, so I think there's a, uh, uh, the, the opportunity for the retailer is the, the two sides. One is uh, the uh, distribution center, um, quality assurance manager summed this up very well for me. He said, sometimes our centers are called, um, rejection centers, but he said, I would love nothing more than to be known as an acceptance center. He said, if you think about it, if you walk into a store, and you buy a mango or you buy a, an apple or whatever it is that is just on the brink. It only just got in on the quality assurance, but it's been sitting on the shelf for two days. And you go home and you have that apple and it, you know, it tastes okay. Are you going running back for another apple to that store? And there's lots of research, market research, so that if you have a bad apple or a bad piece of meat or a bad whatever it is, you won't go back for four to six weeks. Now that doesn't that's 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 in no one's interest because they use that the retailers use a lot of the fresh produce and the meat to draw you and I into the store, but where they make their money are on a lot of the other a lot of the other products in store. So so I think there's a um, there's a big play around minimising food waste and and the the recent number I saw was if you if if all the food waste in the supply chain was actually captured and wasn't waste, then we could we could feed everyone we need to feed. And then I think obviously that provenance is a is a big one, especially for Australia. I mean, we have a very clean, green, safe reputation for our our, our produce in Australia. And if you look at and again, these are figures that were new to me until a few years ago. You know, we eighty two and a half percent of our meat we export, right? So that's eighty two and a half percent. Now, if you think, okay, what if there was a scare on our meat? Well, that means that the farmer down the road and the freighting company and then his son that does this and they did the actual network of it. I think it was the it's the sixth or seventh biggest um, biggest sort of economic driver for Australia is our, our meat industry. So I think having a very strong and secure provenance story around our, our produce, which because of global demand, it's an increasing item. That's why I think you've seen pricing go up. You have things like the drought that come on board. I think you, you know the, I think you're going to see the supply dry up even more. And then demand's going to go up even even more. What about in the organics market, where obviously the certification of organic product is you know, pretty important right, to yep. maintain that certification? Do you see it playing a role there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think any any kind of uh, basically the higher the specialty and the higher the premium sort of price point that can be commanded. Uh, if I was in those industries, I would be. And, we, and we've been approached by a lot of these groups just to just to um, clarify. Uh, that they're saying, hey, how do we, how do we, we know that this is a, a problem? It's, it's sometimes a little bit like the cybersecurity thing, but it, go, it goes under the radar a bit. People don't want to say, hey, you know what, you know, those, those 50 cases of olive oil that had my label on it, that actually wasn't my olive oil. People don't want to say that because then all of a sudden people start saying, well, hang on, that one that I bought, is that actually your olive oil, right? So it's one of these, um, you know, sort of these, you know, these, these problems that, that fly low on the radar, but they are, you know, where people see an opportunity to go, well, I can grab that bowl and put a label on it and charge five times as much for it, then and go. So yeah, so certainly organics, um, and I would sort of argue literally anything that's coming, that's coming out of Australia, um, especially that's got a good brand um, and reputation to it, if uh, yeah, if you're not looking at a blockchain sort of supply, uh, solution for your supply chain, you certainly should be. So you've obviously been involved in a lot of technologies over the years. You've got a really strong history in technology. Is there any one particular one that excites you the most about the future? You know, if, you're, if you're casting your mind forward you know, five, ten years, which technology do you see as being the one? <laughs> I'll give you my biased answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of where we're focused. I mean, with, yeah. the, with the four companies that we have now at Avalus, we've got a Dairy Explorer, Spectral Change, Mech Probe, and, and Trust Providence. Uh, you know, we looked at 
literally hundreds of technologies to get to those four. And I think the reason that we see big opportunity for those in the next five or 10 years is that they they play into the, the optimization theme. So, and what I mean by that is that there is no more land, there is no more water. You and I are only demanding less chemicals that go onto our food and chemical residue. We only want cleaner and greener for, for ourselves and our family. Uh, and to get there, there needs to be other technologies that, that can that can provide that insight to enable that to happen. So I'll give you an example. Here's my vineyard. Let's get a heap of chemical and just dump it all on there because we've seen spots of outbreak A versus little robot spot sprayer goes along and uses only a little bit of chemical or a bit of hot oil or something else that can knock it over. Uh, that's where at the particular location, at the particular location rather than that's it. broad brush across the whole vineyard. That's it. Yep. Yep. So, so that kind of so I think uh, so. In, a, in, in answer to your question, we'll give you a cheat cheats answer. I think artificial intelligence, machine learning, coupled with very sophisticated sensors, and that's a pretty broad answer for you. But it's a pretty broad application. So, whether, and so sensors on drones, sensors on robots, sensors in pipes that tell you that. Your milk quality that's coming out of the dairy is not quite on because there might be a small outbreak of mastitis happening in a cow or a a, a flow issue in a in a winery to show that the pump that's pumping wine between two fifty thousand liter tanks isn't flowing as efficiently because you can pick up the flow rate variable. Or there's a certain bacteria in the wine or whatever it may be, and being able to act on that immediately because I think a lot of these things in a lot of industries like meat quality, you can go and get your shear force and intramuscular fat done now, but you need to take a piece of the meat out, go to the laboratory, sample it, freeze dry it for a week and get your answer in about 10 days. That's not very useful for a piece of meat that needs to be sorted out this morning, packed and shipped this afternoon, right? <laughs> so, so those sensors and real-time nature, and that's where these combination of AI and machine learning. Um, and then obviously the reason I say blockchain is that all of this data is pointless if it can be hacked. If it can be tampered with, then you can never, with hand on heart, really guarantee something. And I guess part of what we're trying to create for Australia is really grabbing that premium opportunity and optimizing our our systems, utilizing the blockchain to make the data tamper-proof and hopefully selling more and growing the, growing the, the ecosystem. I love the fact that with all of your experience and what you're doing, that you're driving this out of Adelaide. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure you've been asked questions before about why aren't you based in the US or why aren't you based somewhere overseas where the markets are much bigger? Yep. Why are you still here <laughs> doing this? Yeah, look, I think, uh, look, I, just to be clear, I'm not against um, people traveling around. I mean, look, my business partner lives in New York and he, you know, that's, that's, that's a deliberate move. He's originally from Adelaide. Um, we're trying to build billion-dollar businesses out of Adelaide and we have a believe there's no reason we shouldn't have a lot of these here. Uh, the reason, or one of the reasons he's based over there is that obviously the US is a huge market. Any technology that we're looking to build here or company we're looking to build here will validate the market in the US, not just jump on Google or go and do a quick road trip in the States for a week, but you know, where he's there, you know, he's here every other month. Um, obviously, every other month he's, he's back, back in New York and, and talking to, so for example, <laughs> with the Walmart model, you know, we know, you know, Frank, who's the, one of the head guys in at Walmart who's driven that initiative. So we'll have touch points in those, those big markets. I, I think, you know, the reason for Adelaide, uh, and I guess it's a culmination of a mixture of local experiences international. I've, you know, I've lived in Bangalore with Microsoft Ventures and, and London. I've done a, a mixture of work there. You know, throughout Europe um, and North America, and you know, slept on plenty of floors in Silicon Valley and the like. Um, and I think you know, when you do that and you come back to Adelaide and you see that you know we have world class science here, we have world class intellectual property here, we have 
I think really great infrastructure. You know, I love living here. I'm super impatient. So, you know, anything past sort of, you know, 15, 20 minutes for me in a car is a traffic jam. <laughs> so clearly I'd go balmy if I lived in uh, some of these other cities. Um, and I think that, you know, we have a, we have a great lifestyle. Um, we have a, a very rich ag, uh, ag sort of food, wine ecosystem here. Um, and I just think, you know, I'm going to have a believer play to your strengths. And, and I think that, you know, ag tech is in a really good spot. Now it feels to me sort of like where fintech was sort of 20, 25 years ago, you know, when I don't know the big superannuation groups were still crunching stuff on Excel spreadsheets instead of using sort of hardcore quant analysis software. Um, but now everyone's using it. So if you said you want to set up a quant business today, I'd be like, you know, there's already, you know, 70 players that are already got 90% of the market. Whereas if you said to me, how many drones are vineyards using today? And let's, let's draw a circle around Adelaide. So, you know, Barossa, Clare, McLaren Vale, Adelaide Hills, Langhorns, you know, Coonawarra. Uh, there might be, I could probably count on one hand how many people might be using it. And I'd also probably be able to say with hand on heart, they're probably all hobbyists. That's not what we're about. We want commercial grade, industrialized, 70, 80% of a market, not seven or 8% of a market. Um, so those are, I think, the opportunities that we have here. And I think, the other thing about South Australia is that because of our ag background and because of groups such as the University of Adelaide, uh, the CSIRO, uh, SARDI, and then if you look at the RDC, so the R&D corporations, so things like Wine Australia, Horticulture Innovation Australia, Meat and Livestock Australia that have levy funding into R&D, you've had people that have been able to dedicate 10, 20, 30 years of their life to research in an agri-industry, but where the issue is in that, and that's, that's the opportunity, is that that's stopped at the R&D stage. Whereas, and then you've got industry screaming for it over here, and then there's this gap in the middle, and that's you know that's where we play. So we think Adelaide's a, in a in a good spot for that, and obviously the um, the opportunity for Adelaide to to capture that we think is now, and we would love nothing more. I mean, look, we've got four ag tech businesses. I would be I'd be smiling more if there were four hundred based out of Adelaide because. The collaboration, the synergies, and the opportunity is is to create this stuff here and sell it all around the world. And that's the plan. Congratulations on the four. That's fantastic. <laughs> I have absolutely no doubt that those four will grow because you are clearly a very passionate, very driven individual. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty exciting to uh, see such great business being driven out of South Australia. So congratulations. Well done. Oh, brilliant. Thank yeah, you very much. Good on you. Yeah, thanks for having Cheers. Me. Cheers. Thank you. That was a pretty full-on and intense interview. There's a lot to digest in there and such a fascinating story. If you want to find out more about this episode or how to contact Avala and Andrew, then head over to our website, www.theselfmadetheory.com. Until next time, keep innovating, overcoming and prospering. Mm -hmm.